So if you were here last Sunday, you'll remember that uh, I told you we had two Sundays left in August before the new church year starts next Sunday, September 1st. And uh, so I was asking the Lord what to share with you on, and, and I felt like the Lord you know, spoke to my heart about sharing with you some of the things that He's been working on my heart uh, about. And so last week, I uh, talked to you about serving the poor because that is something that's really on my heart a lot. How, how, do, how do I serve the poor with more than just lip service? How do I serve the poor more than just talking about it? And I shared with you uh, four things that I believe God would want us to do. One would be to pray, pray for a heart to love the poor, pray for a heart to see the poor as he does. And uh, then I said that uh, the stewardship that he's given to me in part should be a means by which I help the poor. Uh, I should grow, number three, in my perspective on, on the poor to take on God's perspective, and I do that by looking for that in the scriptures as I read my Bible. And then finally, I said I want to encourage, I encourage myself, and I encourage you as well to get your hands dirty, and by that I mean uh, help folks around you, invest in people around you that, that need your help. People don't know what they don't know, right? People don't know what they don't know, and so you know, because of things that, uh, because of where the lots of my life fell, I mean, I have things that can help people who find themselves in relative poor poverty. If you were here last week, we talked about the difference between absolute poverty and relative poverty, where relative poverty is we just compare ourselves to one another in America, and if we don't have a certain standard, then we're the poor, but even the poorest of the poor in our country are not the absolute poor of the world. Wednesday, I was uh, talking with the youth because Abigail had been born, and so, uh, so I took that privilege of sharing with the youth. And I asked them this question. I said, what has God been picking on you about? <laughs> and, uh, and what I meant by that was, you know, what has the Holy Spirit of God been, you know, prompting you and challenging you with? And we talked about that for a little bit. Well, these are two subjects that the Lord has been picking on me with. One of them was the poverty issue, and the other one uh, was the issue of my responsibility to my brothers and sisters in Christ who are around the world, who are being persecuted with extreme suffering for their faith. Do I have a responsibility to the persecuted? And what is that responsibility? How do I serve the persecuted? Well, the persecution of believers has been going on from the beginning of the church, as Jack alluded to. So watch this uh, video real quickly, if you would. While most of us live a life relatively free from persecution because of our faith, there are many who do not. For as long as Christianity has existed, there have been those persecuted because of it, even today. In order for us to know how persecution affects us today, we must know how it has manifested itself across history. Beginning around a year after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Apostle Stephen was stoned to death because of his faith. In fact, nearly all the apostles paid the price of their life for their faith. 64 AD, the Roman Empire, led by Nero, began the first recorded systematic torturing and murder of Christians. This was the first time a governing body enacted the persecution of Christians. Around 100 years later, Christians were killed in mass quantities for refusing to renounce their faith. It was not uncommon at this time for Christians to be robbed, assaulted, or even stoned for their faith. 250 AD, 
All Christians were commanded to sacrifice to Roman gods or face immediate execution. The persecution continued until Constantine came to power in 300 AD and legalized Christianity. 717 AD, the Pact of Umar was enacted. While giving Christians certain rights, it brought a large list of restrictions in many countries. This pact forbade Christians from publicly displaying crosses and rebuilding churches after they were destroyed. 1300 AD, Tamerlane, a ruler at the time over Persia and Central Asia, conducted massacres of Christians on a wide scale in Mesopotamia, Persia, Asia Minor, and Syria. 1600 AD, the Emperor of China banned Christianity for over a hundred years. 1850 AD, in Madagascar, the queen prohibited the practicing of Christianity. It's estimated that over a hundred thousand died as a result. 1915 AD, Ottoman army troops enacted a large massacre on Christian populations in Anatolia, Persia, and northern Mesopotamia regions. 1917 AD, after a political change in Russia, tens of thousands of churches were destroyed or repurposed. This resulted in the murder of over 500,000 Orthodox Christians in the 20th century. Beginning in 1983, Christians in Sudan were under attack. Some estimates put the number of those martyred at over a million, with many more displaced. Present day, Christians are facing growing levels of persecution on the continents of Africa and Asia. There are many countries where being a Christian is punishable by death, several where it is punishable by significant time in prison, and even more where attempting to convert someone to Christianity is a crime. For as long as Christianity has existed, there have been those persecuted because of it. While Christianity can often seem like a safe choice to us, there are many who live where identifying with Christ means putting your life in severe danger. What would you be willing to risk for your faith in Christ? All right, here are some facts as it relates to the persecution of believers around the world from last year. 250 million Christians experience high, very high or extreme persecution. North Korea remains the most dangerous place in the world for a Christian to be 14 straight years in a row. Islamic extremism remains the global dominant driver of persecution responsible for initiating oppression and conflict in 35 of the 50 top countries on the 2017 list. Ethnic nationalism is fast becoming a major driver of persecution. And I quote, while this took on an anti-establishment form in the West, in Asia it took an anti-minorities form fueled by dramatic religious nationalism and government insecurity. It is common and easy for tottering governments to gain quick support by scapegoating Christians. The total number of persecution incidents in the top 50 most dangerous countries increased, revealing that persecution of Christians worldwide is rising in trend and not diminishing. The most violent country is Pakistan, which rose to number four on the list uh, for its level of violence, exceeding even North Nigeria. The killings of Christians in Nigeria saw an increase of more than 62% in 2017. The killings of Christians more, uh, were more geographically dispersed than in most time periods studied. In other words, all over the world, people are being persecuted for their faith. Hitting closer to home, 23 Christian leaders in Mexico. It's hard to, for us to think of Mexico as persecuting Christians, but it's becoming a very unsafe for, place for Christians of our stripe meaning Christians who follow the Jesus of the Bible and believe the Bible. And he says, hitting closer to home, 23 Christian leaders in Mexico and four in Colombia were killed specifically for their faith. This was from Open Doors, though it was said to be a rare event. 
The worst increase is in Mali, which moved up uh, the most places on the list of persecution from number 44 to number 32 of the top 50. Asia is a new center of concern with persecution rising sharply in Bangladesh, Laos, and Bhutan, and Sri Lanka joining the list of the top 50 for the first time ever. Watch this minute and a half video of the five most dangerous countries in the world. So you probably know this, but uh, allow me to just state the obvious. The, the Bible speaks an awful lot to the persecution of believers because when Jesus left us, right, after he had returned to the Father and he left us behind, persecution of Christians became fierce in those early days. Like Jack said, it was led by Saul, who became a relentless persecutor of those who followed Jesus. He oversaw the killing of Stephen, but more than that, uh, he then went throughout the country and even outside the country. Damascus was not in Israel, it was in Syria. And he went outside the country, arresting, imprisoning, even killing followers of the Lord Jesus. And it was because of him, again, this is some of the stuff that Jack pointed out so well in his uh, Bible reading, is that the dispersion of the early church really came about because of Saul's primary leadership in, in that persecution. And when, when Jesus finally arrests Saul in his persecution, he says, why are you persecuting me? Now, you know that Saul would go on to become a follower of Jesus, and uh, he would change his Jewish name to a Greek name, Paul, because he felt this uh, tremendous leadership from God to be someone who went to the Greeks, someone who went to the Gentiles. And he would be one of our first missionaries, and he'd become one of our greatest leaders. But probably something again that most of us know, he would also become one of those who experienced great persecution himself. He himself would be whipped, he'd be stoned, he'd be left for dead. And because of his faith, he would, write to, he would write to one of the churches he started. He wrote this, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be also manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh.
Did you know that the book of Revelation was written to persecuted Christians to encourage them? You know, I have to say that, you know, David, you were talking in, in your welcoming remarks, you talked about how there were some things that you thought all your life, and now recently you've begun to realize that maybe it's not exactly I was thinking that the emphasis is on the resurrection and on, on, on the things that God has planned for us on this earth. And so, but some of these things are things that are new to me, having gone to seminary. You know, one of those is that the book of Revelation really isn't written to so much tell us about the end times, although it does talk about that. The purpose of the book of Revelation was to encourage the saints of that day who were undergoing extreme persecution. It was written to encourage them. Second Peter was written for the same reason. Persecution was such a reality for those early followers of Jesus. And so Paul would warn the new Christians in Iconium and Lystra. He had planted these churches for the first time. He'd gone through where it's present-day Turkey, started these churches. On his way back, he's stopping by there to encourage them. And this is what he says to them on his return, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith, saying, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Of God. In other words, he was saying to them, you know, we're going to suffer. Part of following Jesus carries with it, evidently, this suffering. And Paul embraced that and understood it. Now, the truth is, we in America, and with our religious freedom, which we were founded with, okay, we haven't lived the norm that's been true for most of our brothers and sisters in the world. We, we've had this protective bubble over us for a couple of hundred years where we have not undergone persecution. You know, I think, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's just I think this way, but I tend to think that the rest of the world is like us. And so the religious freedom that we've enjoyed and the protections that we've enjoyed are evidently extending to everybody in the world, but it's not true. In fact, I would suggest that probably most of the world does not enjoy the kind of religious freedom and the protection of our religious exercise that we have in our country. So what does the Bible say about persecution? I want to share with you five things the Bible makes really clear about persecution. Here's the first one. It's a certainty. It's a certainty. And I don't mean by that that it's certain that every Christian everywhere is going to experience the loss that comes from persecution, the loss of property, the loss of freedom, the loss of life. But what I do mean by this is that Jesus says the church will always be persecuted, and it is a certainty that that is how it will be until he returns. In John chapter 15, verse 20, Jesus said, Remember the word that I've said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my sayings, they will also keep yours. The Apostle Paul would write to Timothy in... Uh, in his second letter, chapter 3, verse 12, he would say to Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And again, I don't think that Paul is trying to make this blanket statement that in every case, all of us are going to be persecuted at the same level. But he is saying that following Jesus carries with it persecution. And what we've enjoyed as Americans is an anomaly. It's not the norm around the world. Here's the second thing. We should keep our hearts from hatred against those who persecute us. I don't know about you, but it's really hard not to hate people that, that hate you, and it's really hard not to hate people that hurt you. In fact, even if I watch a movie where I see tremendous injustice, you know, I'm cheering when the bad guy's getting their just desserts, right? I mean, my, my heart grieves over grave injustice, as I know yours does as well. 
But one of the things that Jesus taught us and told us, he said, listen to him. These are his words. Bless those who persecute you. Well, this is not his words. This is Paul's words. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. These are the words of our Savior. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. Now, sounds really hard, doesn't it? I mean, love your enemies, bless those who persecute you, do good to those who are trying to hurt you. I mean, that seems nearly impossible. Yet Jesus left us an example to follow, and Jesus also gave us his spirit by which to energize us to live like him. I mean, guys, it is impossible for us to live like this in and of ourselves, but, but we, through what Jesus has given us in of himself, right, living within us by his spirit, we can do these things. And so Jesus left us this example on the cross, tortured, dying. You know what he said, right? Father, forgive them because they don't know what, they, what they're doing. I can't imagine loving people who just killed my family or destroyed my life, but that's what Jesus calls us to do. Number three, Jesus will give us grace to endure when we are called upon to suffer or to endure persecution. And, and again, I, I, again, listen, please mi don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I, I don't believe that what we experience in our country, although things are changing, okay, but, but what we're going through is, is, not, is not the persecution that we're talking about this morning. But when, you, when people go through persecution, here's the promise of Jesus, and it's the promise for all of us, and that is he will give us the grace that we need to endure it when we're going through it. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 35. One of Paul's greatest passages, even in the book of Romans, he says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, all of those things seem to be at the, at the tip of persecution, just as it's written, for our sakes, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Jesus who loves us. Or loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Romans 8, 35 and following. The author of Hebrews says something similar. He says, he himself has said, I will never forsake, desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, for, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Hebrews chapter 3, beginning with verse 6 or verse 5. You know, I, the Lord is with me. He's my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? If Jesus is with me. That's, that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Jesus in his great commission said, I am with you always. I'm with you always. Corinthians chapter 12, Paul speaking. He says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I was just a young Christian. I was in my 20s, and somebody handed me a book about Vanya. His name, I don't know, his last name is Mosiev. But Vanya, I'm, I'm 20, and this is back in 1972. And so, uh, I mean, he's handing me this book. I'm getting this book in the early 80s, so maybe a 10 years after, after Vanya went through what Vanya went through. But Vanya was a soldier in the Red Army, and he was a believer in the Lord Jesus. And, and from the day he came in, 
and he stood for Christ, they began to persecute Vanya. And they made his life miserable, make him standing out in the coal with nothing but his underwear on and, and guard and all this kind of stuff. And uh, on July 16th, 1972, the torture went so far that Vanya died. And so, of course, this is just 10 years out. Now it's 40 years out, but 10 years out, I'm just a young 20-year-something, 20-year-old following Jesus and reading about Vanya's life. And, uh, and Vanya uh, on July 16th died. But on July 15th, Vanya wrote his brother. And this is what he said. Don't tell our parents everything. Just tell them, Vanya wrote me a letter and writes that Jesus Christ is going to battle. This is a Christian battle, and he doesn't know whether he will be back. I desire that all of you, dear friend, young and old, remember this one verse, Revelation 2.10, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, here's what Vanya says on the day before his death. I'm getting ready to go to battle, and Jesus is going to battle through me and for me. Jesus is going to help me in this battle. That's what he told his brother the next day he died. Number four, God will vindicate his people who suffer. In the book of Revelation, again, I want to remind you, written to encourage persecuted believers, John in this vision, this is what he sees, and I read, when the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of, the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, how holy and true will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there, was, and there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Now, that vision isn't literal, at least I don't think it is. God is not stuffing martyrs underneath his altar in some sort of box, you know, because they're underneath the altar. But God is, by that picture, trying to encourage the, uh, the persecuted believers, those who have died for their faith. And, this is, and they're saying, Lord, how long before you're going to avenge our blood? And Jesus says to them, or God says to them, do not worry, I will vindicate you. I will avenge your blood. But for a while, it's going to continue. But the promise to them is this, that God will vindicate them. Now, when I was, again, a young Christian, it's funny, this message has brought back so many memories for me of my, of my years of following Jesus in my 20s, but I was a young Christian, and, and, and I was seeking to live for Jesus, and I had a position of authority at college, and, and you know, when you follow Jesus and you have a position of authority, I mean, there's just, people don't like you, and, and they don't like you because of the authority, but they take it out on your faith. And I can remember finding this verse in Isaiah 54, 17, and please don't misunderstand that statement. I was not being persecuted. But, but this statement came to mean a lot to me, Isaiah 54, 17, no weapon that is formed against you will prosper, and every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. So here's the promise to all those who are persecuted. Here's what God says, one day I'm going to vindicate you. One day, in front of all the universe, my righteousness will be on display and my judgment will be correct and you will be vindicated. You will be my men and my women who will inherit from me eternal life and God himself says he will vindicate them. Number five, the Bible says there is reward for faithfulness in persecution. Matthew chapter five 
Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, it's hard for me to believe that Jesus would say to all of us, rejoice in your suffering, rejoice in your persecution. If you're being persecuted unto death, man, be happy about it, rejoice in it. But yeah, that's what he says here. But I think the only way for us to do that would be twofold. One would be to remember that he's going to never leave us nor forsake us in the middle of it. And number two is that he's got a promised reward for those who are faithful in the midst of their suffering. Now let's go back to Revelation. Just recently in Revelation on Sunday morning in Sunday school, we studied chapters 2 and 3 or part of chapters 2 and 3. Well, for our middle school, middle school class, I went through all the, all the churches, and I don't know if you noticed this, but in every one of the letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, in the book of Revelation, Jesus is writing seven letters to seven churches. And at the end of every letter, he basically says something like this. To the church at Ephesus, he says, to him who overcomes... I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I'm going to give you eternal life. To the church of Smyrna, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. You're not going to die the second death. To Pergamum, he says, to him who overcomes, to him I will give a new name. To Thyatira, he says, to him who overcomes, he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule with me. Laodicea, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. Here's the point. In every one of the churches, Jesus would say to them, if you overcome this persecution, if you remain faithful, you shall be greatly rewarded. So that brings me to the final part of this talk this morning, and that is, how do you and I serve our persecuted brothers and sisters? So I have four things that I want to encourage you with. And they're similar to those of the poor, but they're also a little bit different. So here we go. Number one, and I know you know I'm going to say this, but number one, I would say pray. Did you know that persecuted Christians, when they're asked, what is one thing believers around the world can do for you? Invariably, they all say the same thing. They all say, pray for us pray for us. I don't know why God set it up this way, but he did. And he works through prayer and he chooses to exercise his sovereignty, his kingship over the world. He seeks to exercise that through our prayers. And so God could have made a world system where he's controlling and causing all things, but he didn't. He created a world of creatures and we're his crowning creation. We're made in his image and he's given us a little bit of self-autonomous direction. And he's also given us a little bit of self-determination. And he works with that self-determination through our prayers. He works through our prayers. Our prayers are not an exercise of just bringing our will into conformity to his. Now that does happen. But I want to tell you, the Bible says you have not because you ask not. And so the truth is our prayers affect things. And, and one of the things that, you know, we've become, I think we become calloused to the truth that my prayers matter because we don't necessarily see God answer like this and we don't see a direct correlation between my praying and God saying, boom, right now I'm going to do it. And so we begin to think that our prayers don't really matter. Your prayers do matter and your prayers for the persecuted matter. 
Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them yourselves and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. So what does he mean by by, by remembering them? Well, he means praying for them. Do you remember remember when Peter is in prison? You remember that story? He's in prison and he's asleep. He's in between two guards. And what's the church doing? They're praying. They're in a meeting praying. And they're praying for Peter's release. And then when God does release Peter, they don't believe it's really Peter. So evidently they're kind of like us. They don't really believe their prayers affect much, right? But their prayers do matter. Watch this video on praying for the persecuted. So we've been praying non-stop now this entire century so far in more than half the nations on earth. And I often see photographs of prayer rooms. And I received one last week that was one of the most moving pictures I've ever seen from a prayer room. The picture itself wasn't that dramatic. It was just people praying. But the caption said, and it was from a Middle Eastern city, they said, ISIS has just moved into our street and is killing our brothers and sisters. And suddenly, this ordinary sight of Christians gathering to pray took on a whole new dimension. There are times when there's very little you can do but pray. I always remember something Brother Andrew said, which is that whenever he is with persecuted church and he says what can we do for you their number one answer is always please tell people to pray for us before they ask for political lobbying or money or whatever they say please pray for us they understand that prayer is the most powerful thing that we can do it is not just an act of solidarity but it is an act that releases people There's a story in the Bible, isn't there, about Peter in jail, facing death. You talk about persecution. And the church prayed, and he was miraculously released from jail. That's the power of prayer. And what I love about that story, of course, is that when Peter knocks at the door and finds the church still praying, they don't believe it's him. So if sometimes in praying for the persecuted church, we struggle a bit with unbelief, don't worry, God can still do the miracle, even with your tiny mustard seed of faith. Prayer is actually the ultimate encounter and the greatest power that we have. We're not just doing political lobbying. We're not just empathizing with people who are suffering. The kingdom of God, the Apostle Paul says, is not a matter of words, but of power. And in prayer, we gain God's perspective and we harness his power to change the world. Father, hear our prayers this morning for our brothers and sisters. And and Lord, I know this is really short, but hear our prayers, Lord, uh, and teach us, Lord, to pray. Teach us to really care about our persecuted brothers and sisters. Even as last week, I I ask that you begin to work in my heart and our heart a love for the poor. Lord, give us a love for our brothers and sisters that we do not know and we cannot see, but yet who are suffering because they love you and they follow you. And Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to care through prayer. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Number two, 
We can advocate for our brothers and sisters, be a voice raising awareness for the needs of our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted by others and by governments. Who's Andrew Brunson? Who is he? How do you know that? You know that because people are advocating for Andrew Brunson. That's how you know who Andrew Brunson is. And so we've passed that on. And so we've been advocating with you that you would pray for Andrew Brunson. And so people are praying for Andrew Brunson. And, and actually, I think there's actually been movement in his situation because of our prayers. At least there's been movement. I hope it's because of our prayers. But we need to advocate for, for people. This is Franklin Graham. One minute. Watch Franklin. Today, our Christian brothers and sisters in many countries are facing persecution and martyrdom on an unprecedented scale. Let us never forget, therefore, that we have a responsibility to speak out for our brothers and sisters in the faith that are undergoing persecution. We must do all that we can to defend and aid those who are victims. My prayer is that God will give us each the courage and boldness and the oneness we need to stand together to lift up the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, he suffered more than any other human being. He was nailed to the cross. He was buried for our sins. But he's risen. He's alive. And he's coming back. He's coming back, my friends. Thank you so very much for coming. We give God the glory. We give him the praise. Thank you. So here's the problem. Here's the problem with advocacy, and that is that I don't know about you, but I don't know who needs advocacy. I don't know how to pray. I mean, I don't know who to pray for. I don't know how to advocate voice-wise, you know, for people. And so if you're going to be an advocate, you're going to have to partner with someone who's felt led to take on the cause of our brothers and sisters in ministry. And maybe God's call, call, leading some of you, calling some of you to actually be part of, of one of these teams. But I've got three suggestions for you. Um, Jack mentioned open doors, and, and I'm on their mailing list, as maybe many of you are. If you are not, I would really encourage you to get on the, on the mailing, list of, mailing list of open doors, a voice of the martyrs, and, and also Samaritan's Purse. Now, there are more ministries out there, but these are three primary ministries who have a very good track record with money and, uh, and making themselves accountable to the, the stewardship of money, and they are doing a lot to help our brothers and sisters who are suffering around the world. And, and so I would really encourage you, uh, tie in with them, get an email from them so you can pray, so you can know where our brothers and sisters are suffering. So that, that'll be available in my email tomorrow, uh, Tuesday for you if you're interested. I'll give you some links for those in the email. Number three, encourage. Encourage our brothers and sisters. And here's where I'm talking about us doing more than advocacy. Advocacy is with others. Encouragement is for them. And, and what I want to suggest to us is that we write letters we write letters to our brothers and sisters. And you say, well, how can I do that? How can I write letters? Because Open Doors, Voice of the Martyrs, Samaritan's Purse are, are finding ways for you to communicate with our persecuted brothers and sisters, and you can send letters to encourage them. 
I have a video here, but I'm not going to show it, so we're going to skip that next video, okay? Uh, I really want to urge you to do that, and uh, so as a result of this talk and my preparation for this, uh, I actually, y'all remember the girls who were kidnapped by Boko Haram? Y'all remember that? I think it was, was it a hundred young ladies that were taken? And... Uh, what do you hear about them anymore? Remember there was all this, all this publicity about that at the beginning and hashtag bring back our girls or something like that and you don't hear about it much anymore but the girls are still missing. Most of them have not been returned. And, uh, and, and on Open Doors Ministry, they actually have ways you can write some of the parents. So as I sat at my desk this week, I, I wrote to some of the parents of the Boko Haram girls and, and in my letter I just sought to tell them that I was praying for them and encouraging them and and to be honest with you, sitting there writing them, what would it be like if my joy was taken and I don't know where she is and I don't know what happened to her, you know, or, or my Katie or my Libby, you know, what would that be like? And, and so one of the things that we can do at times is we can write, we can encourage. So I'd really like to encourage you to do that. It wouldn't take much, wouldn't take any money, just a little bit of your time. And finally, the last thing is give. And you probably knew I was going to say this as well, didn't you? But, but give. These ministries work. These, these ministries that work to help our persecuted brothers and sisters, I mean, they need financial support. And, uh, and like I said last week about the poor, I think the stewardship of what God's provided, given me to steward, I, I think he'd want us to help our brothers and sisters around the world. So I really want to encourage you to do this. So why not just budget a little bit of money to help the voice of the martyrs or the Samaritan's purse or open doors, whatever. And, and some of you might be thinking this, man, I'm barely scraping by myself now. And here you're adding one more thing that you think I should give to, right? So here's what I want to say to you. If you are barely scraping by and you don't have anything to give, then don't give. And please don't feel guilty about it, all right? But I know Ann and I have extra to give, and some of you have extra to give, and I really want to encourage us that have extra to give. My excess has become that which is necessary for people's want. And so I want to encourage you, if you can, to set aside some money to try to help the persecuted brothers and sisters and choose a ministry, do your research and choose a ministry that's going to use, I mean, Ann and I were researching and, and these ministries, I think, use 80 cents of every dollar you give for the persecuted. And, and so, I mean, that's really good. 20 cents is for overhead, right? And uh, so that's really good. So I would really encourage you to do your research. And, and if you don't have money to give now because it's just not there, maybe when you're older, Maybe when, you know, the kids are all grown and you're not having to pay for all of that, there'll be extra money. And you remember this day and you remember our brothers and sisters and, uh, and you give, you know, give what you can. And even today, give what you can, you know, uh, from time to time. Here's my closing video. Let's watch this. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. I remember hearing this nursery rhyme as a child and always struggling to reconcile the words with the reality. Because no matter how hard I tried, it seemed as though words, well, they hurt as much and they did more damage than 
any physical discrimination I ever received. Which I guess means if in so many ways words are as damaging as violence. What impact does the way I speak about the church have on those around me? A good friend of mine, a non-Christian, once said, why would I be a Christian? You're the only army in the world to shoot your own wounded. The church is meant to be the bride of Christ, but it behaves like a harem, each one jostling for position. It's a haunting statement and it's stuck with me for years because what they're essentially saying is, well, maybe some of the greatest persecutors of the modern church are in fact Christian. In the Bible, we read a lot about Saul and his ferocity towards Christians and ultimately the church. But then when his life is transformed on the road to Damascus, we see a man emerge who has a great love and respect for the church. Don't get me wrong, he still critiques the church. But each time he does so, his letters are saturated with a grace, love and peace for the recipients. I remember being in northern Iraq and meeting with Christians who had been displaced by ISIS and hearing a story of a pastor who describes the body of Christ in a way that I'll never forget. Because he talked about the fact that a body, well, it's made up of elements like blood, bones, muscles, skin. And he said how if you remove any one of those elements, well, a body, it can't stand. And he went on to say, well, for us in Iraq, it's, it's almost as though the Catholics and the Coptic Orthodox, well, they're like the bones. They're rigid and, and not pliable. But if you take them away, well, our body collapses. He says the Pentecostals, well, they're like the blood, fluid and pliable. But again, without them, our body, it can't stand. He said Anglicans, well, they're like the muscles. Although somewhat rigid, they're still pliable. And how if you remove any one of those elements, well, the body, and in this case, the church, can't stand. He then talked about the idea of a body and, and how it fights off infection. And what you find is that blood flow increases, muscles contract, and they all rush to the area that needs protecting. And he said, well, that's what the church in Iraq is doing right now. We have Coptic Orthodox looking after Pentecostals, looking after Catholics, looking after Anglicans. The body of Christ in Iraq, it's hurting. And we are rushing to protect it. What I loved was that the pastor talked about the fact that it's not been easy to get the church in Iraq to come together. But he said, when ISIS came, well, that all changed. Because what we'd been trying to achieve for years... He said, ISIS achieved that for us in two weeks. We thank ISIS for bringing the church together in Iraq. Mm. As I think through the way I tend to speak about other churches, I'm reminded of this illustration. And I'm humbled by the thought that maybe, well, maybe I've become one of the greatest persecutors of the modern church. Because the way I speak, it so often criticizes the differences that in so many ways make the modern church so beautiful and I'm not saying we need to condone or agree with each other what I'm saying is that unless we are bold enough to pray for the body of Christ in the same breath as critique the body of Christ I fear that we'll never break the harness that our words place on the gospel of Jesus in our nations because there is far more that unites us 
than divides us. And we are all truly one in Christ Jesus. The church is the bride of Christ. Believers in Iraq know and live this. What would it take for you and I to do the same? I think that video has broader application maybe than just what we're talking about, but it applies to this. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us compassion for our brothers and sisters, a compassion that moves us, Lord, to care, to pray, to encourage, to advocate, to, to give. So, Lord, as, as you direct us, Lord, uh, give, us, give us eyes to see. Lord, help us not to hide ourselves within our culture, but help us to look beyond to the body of Christ around the world and then to give ourselves to help her. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, everybody. We are dismissed. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web at www.baconscastle.com.